0: Welcome back to The Question Show. This is where you give me your questions about space and astronomy and I answer them. Remember, wherever you are, uh, anywhere on my channel, go ahead and put in a question about space and astronomy, and I will try to answer it here. I've got a special treat for you, but you're going to have to stick around to the very end of the episode. Alright, let's get started. Stasdia. One question. When they launched the LISA, How are they planning to compensate for objects interfering with the lasers, like an asteroid flying straight through the constellation? Right, the LISA mission is this idea for a space based gravitational wave detector where you've got these three missions, they're separated by millions of kilometers, and they use these very precise lasers that measure the distance between the different spacecraft, and they have to remain in precision very close to where their expected place is to make sure that they can perform really accurate readings space is really really big and there's actually not a lot of stuff that is flying through the constellation at the same time i mean this is the issue issue that all mission planners have to deal with which is how do i make sure that my spacecraft doesn't get smashed by space dust or micrometeorites and things like that and the solution is they don't they can't it's just that there's so little stuff actually happening in space that they just take their chances they put the spacecraft up and hope that it doesn't get hit and occasionally a spacecraft does so would you end up with like these really precise lasers and then have a some kind of particle pass through and disrupt maybe Sounds like it's going to happen very slightly. Now you might get like dust or things like that that are in the solar system, and I'm assuming that they will start to figure out how much of that dust there is and compensate for it, so that the lease emission wouldn't end up um, sort of losing its its data. Seraphic. Am I the only one who thinks it seems wasteful and irresponsible to consider flat out destroying other planets in order to gain their resources? Wonder if this is how industrialists of the past thought about deforestation, etc. So this question is kind of in a response to the video that I did with Isaac Arthur, and we were talking about how a Type 2 Civilization, as it's moving towards building its Dyson Sphere, might decide to start to dismantle all of the planets in the Solar System to actually have the material for that. And I can see how that is an ethical question. If it were up to me, I think we would never destroy the Earth, because the Earth is a very special place, has a historical value, there's life on Earth, and it would be you know, very unethical for us to destroy the life on Earth. That said, the Sun is going to heat up and destroy all life on Earth in about a billion years, and in about 7 billion years it's going to consume the Earth, maybe. When it expands into a red giant. so the the future of the earth is doom. And so the question is, do we take it upon ourselves to dismantle it in advance to preserve human society? What do we think about when we see a rock or a a chunk of limestone, do we feel ethically concerned to destroy it? I mean, if the planets are dead of life, there's nothing on Mercury, there's nothing on Mars, there's nothing on Europa, then, I would feel less, I mean, apart from just feeling nostalgic about that time when those things existed, but I wouldn't feel like we were performing some kind of ethical crime. But if there is life there, I personally think we should be completely hands off to those worlds to give that life a chance to do what it's always done and continue doing for, for the future. Now, maybe we may feel differently when the sun is about to destroy it, but if we find life, I think we should be hands off with those other worlds. No life? Nah, we can take them apart. Silt Strider. What would be the approximate age of the Universe where life could have formed, so that when the Suns became stable enough, plus how long it took on Earth? In order for us to have life on Earth, when you think about the Sun, say the Universe is 13.8 billion years old, and the Sun and the planets are about 4.5 billion years old. So the Universe was around, now life on Earth formed within a billion years, 700 million years of when the earth formed. So really soon on. So you can think about it, life on earth formed about say 8 billion years ish after the universe had formed. And the reality is is that that life could have formed much much earlier, like say within the first billion years. What you need is this cycle of heavier material. So when the, when, the, when the Universe first cooled down, there was just hydrogen and helium, and these big stars would have turned into this first generation of stars. They would have exploded a supernova very quickly, and then turned into more stars, and those would have been very massive, and they would have exploded. And so you would need multiple generations of stars to get the heavier elements that we use here on Earth. Now, there's a really interesting theory that I really like, which is that if you go back to the very beginning of the universe, about, say, 15 million years after the universe formed, the entire temperature of everywhere in the entire cosmos, like the cosmic microwave background radiation everywhere, was about room temperature. And so liquid water could have formed everywhere. In the entire universe. The whole universe was the temperature, was the habitable zone. And so you can imagine for about, I think it's about seven million years, you could have had life anywhere in the entire universe. Although, you know, how many of those heavier elements would you have had? That's still an open question. But it's a very interesting theory. This comes from Avi Loeb, who we've done a bunch of stories on uh, on universe today with all his various ideas. But this is one that I really like. No name James. Hey, what do you think would be a good first telescope? For anyone who wants to get into astronomy and they think, oh, it's time for that telescope, the first thing that I recommend that you do is get a pair of binoculars. Get something like, but astronomical binoculars. Celestron makes a good pair, sort of like a 15 by 75 pair of binoculars. That's where you should always start. If you've gone out and you've looked at the night sky and you really enjoy using the binoculars and you want to take things to the next level then there's a bunch of telescopes. The thing that matters the most, well, it sort of depends on what you want to do, but if you want to do, like you want to be able to, I I really like the go-to telescope. So you have a controller and you punch in like, show me Jupiter. And then the telescope turns and shows you Jupiter. And I like that. I like being lazy. Um, So the mount is very, very important, more important than actually the optics of the telescope. So you're going to want to spend a little more money. The size of the telescope, I would go for a minimum of a, of a six inch reflector telescope and say a 130 millimeter refractor telescope. Um, and both of those are going to run you in the sort of $300 to $1,000 range, is, is what you're looking at. Anything from any of the sort of major telescope suppliers that you've seen, the Celestron, Mead, uh, there's a bunch of sort of fairly entry level but really good telescopes and that's what I would go with. You want a good mount, that's the most important thing that has the kind of control that you want. Now if you want to go into something like astrophotography and you want to like put a camera onto it, then the mount becomes even more important. So make sure you've got the good mount. And so when you're looking at reviews, look for the people talking about the quality of the mount and the stability of the mount and how well the, the go-to part works. But you should be spending... you know. Somewhere 300 to 500, up to about a thousand dollars for that first telescope. A clever. So when do we get anti-gravity engines or artificial gravity? The end goal of this research is to produce such things, correct? Or am I being too optimistic in thinking those feeding from the government trough actually have a clear end goal? So this was a response to the video that we did about gravitational waves, and it's very important to see that that we have this thing called basic research. We research into these basic concepts of physics and the universe, like, and, and we've done this for hundreds and hundreds of years, about electricity and electromagnetism, and how light works, and lasers, and, and uh, silicon chips, and all of these concepts, these basic underlying battery technology, and, and it's basic concepts in biology, and all this kind of stuff, and, and there is no point except to understand how the universe works better, to know to, to try and get a sense of how things are working. Now as we discover these things, then actual technologies, the engineers come in and they're like, oh, we could turn this laser thing that you've invented and, and suddenly now lasers are everywhere and they're used for everything and it is one of the most important practical technologies and especially silicon chips, right So, I think it's really short-sighted to say, oh, what what's the purpose of this research? The point of this research is to understand the universe better. And when you think about the government trough, I mean the amount of money spent on basic scientific research in the United States and other countries is a fraction of the money that's spent on everything else, on military, on takeout pizza, on lawn care maintenance, on just ridiculous things, and to just like, why can't we spend a little bit of money trying to understand the Universe. I think it's important and worth doing, and if it turns into useful technologies down the road, awesome. And if it doesn't, well we tried. And it's worth trying. Christopher Brown Floyd. On the astronomy topic, and the upcoming launch of the James Webb Space Telescope, what type of benefit would putting duplicate telescopes at L4 and L5 have? Could we link them like we do radio telescopes to be able to resolve other solar systems and their planets? If so, what could we possibly view and what would be on your list? So, just to be clear, the L4 and the L5 points, those are the Lagrange 4 and L5 points, and they are sort of ahead and behind the Earth on its orbit around the Sun. And unlike the L1, 2, and 3 points, they're stable. So, you could plop a telescope in the L4 point. And it would never need any more fuel, it would just sit there, and it would be able to observe the Universe. And the nice thing is is that with the L4 and the L5 points, they are 60 degrees away from the Earth along its orbit, they're very far away, and you could have them point at the same object. Now, as you were mentioning, astronomers, not just radio telescopes, this is a technique called interferometry. And what happens is, telescopes, two telescopes set apart, will point at some object and you get to add together the resolution of the two telescopes and make them act like one telescope. Now there's some benefits and there's some downsides, and I think we've done a whole video on this, but the gist is is that it's not as good as a telescope that is the radius of, of the two telescopes sort of out to the side, but it's better than if you combine the surface area of the two telescopes. What you have to do is you have to line up the wavelengths of the images that they're seeing perfectly to be able to get the advantage of these two telescopes working as one. And with radio telescopes, because the wavelengths are so big, it's very easy for astronomers to line up the wavelengths to get the same image. But with the visible light telescopes, the wavelengths is tiny, right, nanometers. And so it's very difficult to, with based on timing, be able to line up those. So you have to do this in real time, and so you would have to have these telescopes that are sending their signals back and you are lining up the wavelengths from these two telescopes perfectly so that you're getting this combined image. Now remember, it's better than the you know the combined surface area of those two telescopes, but it's not as good as a telescope that's the size of the Earth's orbit, but it's still really good. Now what would I want to see? Obviously I would want to see other planets orbiting around other stars. I would love to see, you know, start observing other stars and try to find planets. If we find planets, I want to see what's on those planets. So I think that would be a great idea and I'm sure there's going to be some folks from NASA and stuff will say, oh, it's a little too tough to, you know, we can barely make a visible light telescope work on the scale of, say, a few tens of meters or hundreds of meters apart, we can't imagine the kind of technology it would take to put those halfway across the solar system, but uh, I'm, it is theoretically possible. Maz Oler, wouldn't closed off lava tubes on Mars or the Moon be the best option for habitation? I mean, could we pressurize them with breathable air or would it slowly escape through the rock? There are these amazing lava tubes on both Mars and the Moon, and we can see them on Mars. There are like these... these um, Holes, these black holes that's, that are on the surface of Mars. And what they are is they are the skylight of this cavern. And we think it's like some kind of lava tube where the, just a little part of the, the surface of the cavern has, has fallen through. And there are similar things on the moon as well. And because of the lower gravity on the moon, you can imagine these lava tubes might be like enormous, like taller than the Empire State Building. And so you could imagine future civilizations living in these lava tubes. You would probably still want to pressurize them, so you would probably spray the walls with some kind of concrete or some kind of membrane that would keep your air in to stop it from leaking out. And But apart from that, it's sort of like the perfect place to go and begin the colonization or exploration of a world like that. So I think it's a great idea. ExoElite. Instead of the universe expanding could everything be moving towards some bigger black holes which are scattered in the universe This is the kind of thing that you could test you look out into the universe and you look at how how galaxies are moving and so under the current theory which is that everything is expanding apart from each other what you get is when you look in every single direction the further a galaxy is the faster it's moving away from you but if there were these big black hole blobs out there, then what you would see is you would see a bunch of galaxies moving away from you because they're being sucked towards this black hole. But then you'd see other galaxies on the other side of the black hole, and they would be coming towards you because they are all getting sucked into this gravitational well. And that's not what we see. We see everything moving away, not something's moving towards us and something's moving away from us towards these centers of mass that you would would predict if that's what was out there. So in this case, you can just make the observation. You can see that it matches the that the universe is expanding and not clumping together. Matthew Zaleski, Fraser, I really appreciate that your team takes the time to pull together the extra video playlists for the topic that you're covering. I just finished watching the set you put together on gravity waves, and it was a very interesting deep dive into the topic. Thanks, Matthew. This is a new thing that uh, that I've decided to add to the videos, which is that you know I will put a series of playlists, and I'm. I'm still sort of figuring this out, but for the for the regular Guide to Space videos I kind of want it to feel like it's sort of like leveling up. So the, the first video on the playlist is a very simple, short introduction that's some other different aspect or maybe handled by someone else on the same topic and then a bit of a longer one, and then a bit of a longer one, and more complicated. And then I always wanna end with some kind of lecture where it's like a TED talk, or someone at NASA, or a astronomy researcher is explaining in great detail what the topic is about. Now the cool thing about these playlists is that I can add more stuff to them later. So if you're watching a video and, and I provide a playlist and you're like, oh, I know some better videos for that, then put the links in the video on, in the comments, and I will gather them up, and if I think they're appropriate, I'll just keep adding them to the playlist, and just make the playlist longer and more comprehensive, so that you can really dig into a subject. With uh, the question shows, I'm just right now just putting links to a bunch of recent videos that I'm enjoying from other, uh, you know, other YouTubers that are in the same subject area, and, and sometimes slightly different. So hopefully, you can just get a chance to see some stuff that I'm enjoying right now. W. Stockall. Do you know if gravitational waves are redshifted the same way electromagnetic radiation would be by the expansion of the universe? Right, so this idea of redshift is that the wavelength of light as it travels across the universe and as the universe is expanding, the wavelengths of light stretch out, and so what started out as say visible light turns into infrared, turns into microwave, into radio waves, and it just gets stretched out. And yes. The same idea works for gravitational waves, so as the Universe expands, the frequency of the gravitational waves is going to stretch out and you're going to have to compensate. And the reality is is that when gravitational wave researchers are doing their work, they actually account for that expansion of the Universe when they try to figure out what object it is that passed by. Now they've only had 3 shots at this right, so far, but this is the Expansion in the Universe, the stretching out of the gravitational wavelength is happening and that precisely matches the Big Bang Theory and, and what Einstein predicted. JCB. Do all spacecraft orbit in the same direction? They mostly orbit in the same direction, and the reason is because the Earth is turning and you've got this force, you've got this rotational force, this inertia, because you're on the Earth right now, and you're actually moving. If you're down at the equator, you're moving the, um, the circumference of the Earth every 24 hours. You're moving about 1,000 kilometers per hour. And so the easiest place to orbit, if you want to send a spacecraft up, is you launch from the equator following the direction that the Earth is rotating, and then you get advantage. Now that means that you can say, you can lift a heavier payload with less fuel, or you can deliver just you know a heavier payload in general. There are other different orbits. There's a polar orbit, so you go from the top of the Earth to the bottom of the Earth, and the problem is those orbits, you have to make a very significant course change so that you're going you know, in addition to just getting into orbit, you then have to change your orbit so that you're orbiting this way as well. So it just takes more energy to have a polar orbit. Now the cool thing is you can do polar orbits from other parts of the Earth. So here in Canada, we may be setting up a spaceport that's going to be doing launches that are designed for polar orbits, because you don't have to worry about going to the equatorial regions. So just in general, Most spacecraft tend to orbit in the same way, just because that is the cheapest way to get stuff off planet Earth. And if the Earth was turning the other way, then they would be all going the other way. Alright, I said I got a special treat. Here is a new thing that we are trying to figure out, and that is a guest question answerer. need a better name for that. So in this case, Dr. Paul Matt Sutter answers a question that's
1: way beyond my pay grade, and here we go. All right, thanks a lot, Fraser. We've got an excellent question here from Kurt Reber asking, in theory, would it be possible to overtake the edge of the expansion of the universe? Uh, The short answer is no, but don't stop the video yet because the reason no is pretty cool. So our universe is expanding. Every galaxy is getting further away from every other galaxy. There is no edge, there is no boundary to the universe. I know that's hard to think about. How can it be expanding without having an edge, without having to expand into anything? But that's just what the math tells us, all right? Mother Nature doesn't have to make sense. Uh, It just has to be mathematically consistent in order to make it physics. So, imagine, imagine, forget the universe, forget galaxies, all that. Imagine you and me were sitting on a big rubber band a very big rubber band. And we're to start stretching out. And there are two people just pulling constantly, just walking pace, no big deal. We would appear to you know, recede away from each other. And the more rubber band between us, the farther apart we were, the faster we would appear to be receding. Double the distance, double the speed, quadruple the distance, quadruple the speed, Uh, octuple the distance, octuple the speed, and so on. Eventually, even though the expansion between us is nice and neat and uniform, and some constant speed, eventually you would appear to recede away from me faster than the speed of light. And nothing can go faster than the speed of light, which means if I started running, uh, you know, running up against that rubber band trying to catch up with you, I would never be able to run fast enough to ever catch up with you, even though you're not actually moving faster than the speed of light, just the space between us is expanding faster than the speed of light. So a distant galaxy at the edge of the observable universe appears to be moving away from us faster than the speed of light. That means we can see it now, but we'll never ever be able to catch up to it. Excellent question, Kurt. You can check out more questions and more answers over on my channel, youtube.com slash Paul Matt Sutter. P-A-U-L-M-A-T-T-S-U-T-T-E-R. There might even be a link down there. I have no idea how this works. Okay, I have some idea how it works, but that's not important right now. What is important is that you go to my channel and subscribe and listen to all the other videos because there's so much space going on. Thanks a lot, Fraser. Thanks a lot, Kurt. Okay, that's it
0: of another question show. Thanks to everyone who asked their questions. Thanks especially to Dr. Paul Matt Sutter for tackling that complicated question. I really appreciate it. Now, as I mentioned, time for a playlist of things that I'm watching right now. Oh, so itchy. You have to cut that out, Chad.